Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. And I'm your host and former computer engineer turned entrepreneur, Manny Laya. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Today, I am super excited to have Mike Smirklow. Did I get that right, Mike? You did. You did. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for being here. You're an entrepreneur from your past life, now a venture capitalist. So you're seeing the world of entrepreneurship from two different angles. And you've been through a lot of different phases in your own journey. And today we're talking about your book, uh, Mr. Monkey and Me. It's a funny title, I got to say. And, uh, but I really enjoyed the book. Uh, there's a lot of good insights there. Sounds like uh, you've done a lot of work, self-work, <laughs> read a lot of the books. You talk about that as well. So I'm super excited to talk to you about the book, about your journey, about the lessons for entrepreneurs, especially given that currently in your role, you are mentoring uh, entrepreneurs through their journey as a VC. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about, I, I want to, before we get in the book, I, wa- I want the readers to know your journey, your, you know, what led you to writing this book? I know the whole book is kind of like a journey, but give us a brief synopsis of uh, how you got started and what led you to where you are today to Next Coast Ventures and what led you to writing the book. Yeah, well, on the book, I, I think I joke, jokingly aside, I think if I knew how hard it was going to be, I wouldn't have done it. But that that's kind of like entrepreneurship, right? If you if you knew how hard it's going to be, you probably wouldn't mm-hmm. do it. Um, but I wrote the book. I'll tell you a bit of my background, but I wrote the book largely because I felt it was a pretty significant void in content for entrepreneurs. Uh, I was watching. I'd been an entrepreneur, as you said. I'm now I'm a venture capitalist, and I saw two forms of content for aspiring or current entrepreneurs. On the one hand, there was the kind of how-to stuff, which is really important, how to write a business plan, how to get funding, how to you know, set up your corporation. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was our very much um, kind of pop culture Shark Tank-esque, right? So mm-hmm. what Elon Musk does before breakfast or, or kind of entrepreneur hacks. Um, and I thought neither of them really, none of them really hit about what I think might be the biggest differentiator in success, which is the mental aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only getting started, but sustaining yourself on the journey and then handling the success or failure of the journey really comes down to mental toughness. And I see it every day in my day job now. And I just didn't find any content that was focused on that. I felt like I had a pretty rich experience and I'd made a heck of a lot of mistakes. Uh, So that was really the inspiration for writing the book. Yeah. You kind of married two of the concepts here, entrepreneurship and mental toughness. Like, um, uh, I keep thinking about it because I've literally studied a ton of books on the topic of mental toughness. And I feel like that is one of the most important skills we can develop as entrepreneurs or as human beings in general, but especially in entrepreneurship, it's a tough game. It's a brutal game and the world doesn't prepare or most of the feel good uh, entrepreneurial advice out there doesn't really prepare you for what the brutal truth of entrepreneurship is like. So you do a great job of explaining exactly that in the book. And I want to go back to your story because, you know, your story is very powerful, especially, you know, growing up in Ohio in a very difficult environment with uh, a broken family and uh, all that stuff. Take us, take us back to the beginning. I want to get to that. Yeah. Well, I I, I talk about the book, but I was, um, first of all, I 
I do acknowledge I was born a, a white male in raised in the seventies. So I still probably ended up started on second base compared to most, or maybe third, you'd argue. But when I was growing up, um, I was in a, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of divorce, a lot of alcoholism and broken family and not a lot of gro- great role models. And I bring that up, not for sympathy. I bring it up because it was probably the greatest barrier earlier on in my life to overcome. I just didn't have role models that I could point to and say, I want to be like that. And so my early days in, in Toledo, and I, I was from the, the rougher side of Toledo, Ohio, and whenever I'm doing live multi uh, like Q and A, people say, "Is there a good part of Toledo?" And I say, "Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of streets, but I was not I was not in that part of it. I just knew I wanted to get out. Uh, the problem is I didn't know how, and the second problem was I didn't have any money, and third, I didn't have any uh, really role models. So I didn't have anyone mentally to say, "Yes, I want to go do that." Uh, I was very fortunate in that I was raised by a single mother. The one thing she really emphasized was to get educated. So I was the first person in my family to actually go to a four-year college and graduate. And I graduated with a degree in business. And from there, I really began a career initially pursued on just trying to get some fundamental skills, trying to make a little bit of money and trying to get comfortable in a world of business, which I had absolutely zero experience in. Uh, so that was that was kind of the foundation. Mm-hmm. I took a job. My first job was in public accounting. It was one of those jobs I I think it was probably 17 hours into the job. I realized I'd made a horrible mistake uh, because the subject matter was not, not really lined up with my personality, but I did the job for two years. I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Then I got a job in investment banking, sucked the life out of me, literally, physically, and emotionally. But I again, learned a lot. Then I went and got my MBA at Northwestern. And then I moved to Silicon Valley in the late nineties with an I, I interest in entrepreneurship and no really path towards it. But what a great time. I was out there in the dot-com bust or boom, sorry, then bust. And then just saw all sorts of people building businesses first as an advisor. And then I got recruited uh, by two legendary entrepreneurs, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz to go join their startup. And so I got to have been, yeah, I mean, yeah, my joke is it's like, you know, it's like reading about a marathon in a, a magazine and then going to Kenya and training with marathoners, like two hour marathoners. It was that intense. But I really get to drop in and see what, what it was all about. And that just solidified my interest and lifelong passion on entrepreneurship. Yeah. And then you went on to buy another business and, yep. and start Next Coast Ventures. Up. But that time working with Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, I mean, two legendary entrepreneurs and VCs today. Um, I want to talk about that time just a little bit before we get into the nuts and bolts of the book there. And what was it like uh, coming from at that time, they were probably not as big a deal as they are today. No. Right. Well, they, I mean, essentially, right. Mark, Mark has been, Mark was 28 years old at this time. Mm-hmm. Mark had already been on the cover of time magazine wearing uh, surf shorts and a t-shirt as he had taken Netscape public. So mm-hmm. in, in the technology world, and this is just when the internet was coming online. So mm-hmm. in the technology world, he was kind of, and, and should be rightly so thought of as a brilliant visionary, but he didn't have Andreessen Horowitz, obviously, and it didn't have the kind of global scope that he's now much, much more famous for, but they were really smart guys, super ambitious, big, big idea. And I went and learned, I, you know, kind of went from the sidelines and jumped right in and just was amazed by the pace, the ups and downs, the uncertainty and watching too. And Ben's written a great book called the hard thing about the hard mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. I live chapter one through eight with it. It's a wonderful book and very accurate, but just what it takes to be in an entrepreneurial environment 
And it, I couldn't have gotten a better education. It was probably the best two years in my life in terms of learning to be a leader. And I applied so many learnings from that. I didn't even recognize when I actually jumped on my own path. So did you say you lived through the first eight chapters as in uh, Ben was talking about those chapter, like the early days of Loud Cloud as in- Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, the, and the, hard th- hard thing about the hard thing, he talks about the startup uh, and then he talks about when the, the market crashed, they're out of capital, they had to lay off a bunch of people. And I went all the way through that. And then when they decided to sell off the uh, services business is when I left, but I was there for a good two and a half years and just soaked it all in. All the, mm-hmm. all the ups and downs. And that's where you learned a lot about how to be authentic in many ways in your leadership journey. And it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult journey or it's a journey of uncovering uh, your own truth in some ways. And I know I'm going out of order yeah, this compared to yeah. what, you, what you talk about in the book, but, but talk to me about that that journey of like authenticity, especially compared to the other person you had worked with before. And now you come across these two different kind of guys. And uh, what does it mean to be authentic as yourself in the space of entrepreneurship as the founder, as the CEO? Yeah, well, I, I struggled with it probably still to, to the day, but I, I really, when I was first being an entrepreneur, and again, it probably goes back to the, you know, Mr. Monkey is, is the star of the book, but it goes back to just not really feeling comfortable I didn't really know. I had these images of what I thought an entrepreneur was supposed to do or a leader was. And I, I talk about this guy named Greg Reyes, who's still a great friend, but he had been this alpha male, late nineties, became a close to a billionaire, ran a company called Brocade. And he was everything that I guess I thought in my mind, a entrepreneur or leader was take mm-hmm. George Clooney and combine him with a NFL linebacker. And he was just larger in life, always in control, take the hill kind of guy. And then I'll never forget. I, I met Mark for breakfast, Mark Andreessen. And he said, why don't you come work for us? Cause I was talking about some debt financing. He's like, I got a better idea. Come work for us. You just got to meet Ben first. And I walk in and, and here's this, the hottest startup in Silicon Valley. It's only the four, four founders. And, but everyone was talking about it. They just raised a big bunch, a bunch of money from benchmark. And I walk in and I literally looked at Ben and I thought, huh, this is not what I expected. I mean, that, just Ben is very different. He doesn't carry the weight of a CEO. He looked nothing like Greg Reyes or not, and didn't act like him. Very soft-spoken, very introverted. But watching him work, he had the most, his ability to give feedback, give direction, very much a we leader, meaning there was nothing about Ben. It was all about the company. Mm-hmm. And that, that, the way he approached it, he could be quiet in a meeting. He could say the most direct kind of almost insulting, not insulting, but very to the point question that, that would make me cringe. I think, oh my gosh, he just said that. But everyone knew he was doing it from a place of the right, the right place around we. So I w- then I went out to be an entrepreneur. I had these two voices. I kind of joke. It's like I had two different voices in my head. I had the Greg like, be an alpha male, and no show, no weakness. And then I had Ben kind of be thoughtful, you know, calm. And I struggled with that because I was always trying to figure out who I should act like uh, and it was a few years in when I finally started to get my own voice. And I realized I was not Greg. I was not Ben. I was Mike. I was somewhere in the middle. And then now I've found that a lot of leaders and a lot of entrepreneurs, certainly first-time entrepreneurs, struggle with this as well. And I just think it's, it's a real, it takes skill to master and really show up consistently in an authentic way. Yeah. So what do we need to do as entrepreneurs to become more authentic because that's a huge part. I mean, 
as you as you're talking about, I, I realize the importance of showing up authentically, or seeing the different sides of authenticity, or seeing the different uh, kinds of entrepreneurs, and both of them having success in their own ways. But to me, like as the person out here on the fringes, I'm thinking, okay, Mike, teach us how to <laughs> how how you develop that authenticity. Because what I have struggled with, and I, as you talk about rightly so in the book, you read the biography of Steve Jobs, and you're like, oh, you should be this way. And then you read the biography of uh, Elon Musk, and you think, oh, you should be this way. And then you read the book uh, on Jeff Bezos, and you're like, oh, I think I need to be this way. But the yeah. truth is, somewhere in the middle there, or you know, the, yeah, tell us how we do this. Well, I would first first and foremost say I'd say there's a lot better uh, sources of expertise around this topic. But I think what you're hitting upon is, if I could break it down into a very basic format, the whole the whole formula I lay out in the book, the shape formula, it it's really starts. It's based on self awareness, and I think that's so critically important. Just going back, Liz, like what what do you like? What do you not like? What are you good at? What are you not good at? And having that framework, at least for me, and then getting help to figure out where. I could improve and were areas where I was just going to acknowledge I wasn't that great and try and augment it with, with other team members. That to me was my first step in authenticity. And then I think it was just, you know, I think we all have this little voice. So I think we have multiple voices. At least I got multiple voices in my head. Some of them are Mr. Monkey, which is the caricature telling me uh, I stink. I'll never do it, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's a voice that, you know, just kind of, what do you feel? Like, how, how do you feel about a particular situation? And at least for me, it was when I really started to get in touch with that side of it. And then I think the other part was being vulnerable, mm. starting to acknowledge that I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to know exactly what's going to happen or, or where I think the company's going. And really just getting more comfortable with that. At least for me, when I did that, that's when I started to feel much more authentic and much more comfortable in my role as entrepreneur and CEO. And then I watched my team gravitate for me. You know, the first time I, I, and I read about this book, I said to my team, I don't know the answer. My caricature, Mr. Monkey was jumping up and down saying, you just said, what? You can't tell people you don't know what you're doing. You, you're, you're the boss. Come on. Mm. And it was just the opposite. I watched my team lean in and then start to say, oh, wow. Okay. We're going to work together on this. Uh, and that was just one small example of where I started to show up more authentic in my role. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a journey of self-discovery as you talk about in the book the first part of which is just knowing yourself and uh, that leads you to this place of authenticity and uh, as you were talking about that as you were you know explaining that idea and you being your authentic self in that situation I was reminded of this book uh, I don't know if you've read it Jim Collins's book Built to Last yeah, great book. Great, great book. book, right? And in that, he talks about this idea that there's numerous values out there. It's not that you need to have the values of Apple or Nordstrom's or IBM or HP or anyone else. That's not the point. The point is you need to find your own unique values and stay true to your values rather than try to adapt or adopt some other great businesses' values. And I think that's that, that was the the key challenge or that's the key challenge as entrepreneurs. We somehow make the assumption that we need to go be like that other person instead of saying, this is who I am. And this is how, this is what the business's true values are. This is what the business stands for. And this is what we're going to live true to. Yeah. And, and then hold your employees accountable. I mean, how many times have you, have you walked into a big company 
you, <laughs> it's a joke that you see his posters on a conference wall and they've got 18 values listed out, right? It's impossible. Mm-hmm. There's some Eagle flying over the Canyon and, you know, XYZ corporation lives as values and there's so many, you can't even remember them. And then you walk into a meeting <laughs> and you, you want to look to the people and go, but those values do they, and, you know, like no one follows them. So I yeah. do think that's where you start to say, okay, what do I, what's important to me? You communicate them and then you hold people accountable. And that's where I believe really great cultures come from. Mm-hmm. And also acknowledging that if you're a dictatorial type entrepreneur, you can be successful. One of the biggest mystery for me when I came into venture is I kind of thought there would be a type of personality that was successful. Mm. It turns out now we've invested at Nexcos over $250 million, 50 plus companies. There is no perfect or right personality type. So for all aspiring entrepreneurs out there, anybody can do the job, but it is being mindful of what your strengths and weaknesses are mm. and being open about it. If you're a, you know, a command and control type entrepreneur, then let people know. And people then will eat. Some people love to work in those environments. Some people don't. That to me is where authenticity really comes and really becomes a real part of your journey. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like I did the listeners a disservice by jumping into the authenticity part of the equation, because I do feel like you laid the book out in a fashion that initially started off with the most important piece of the puzzle, which is what you call self as a knowing thyself of your shape methodology, S-H-A-P-E. To put it in perspective for all those who are listening out there, S stands for self as a knowing yourself. H stands for help. A stands for authenticity, which is what we're talking about. P stands for persistence and E stands for expectations. So going back to that S, the self, knowing yourself part of the equation. You did some really interesting exercises from uh, Dennis Waitley. Of course, he's one of the all-time uh, personal development gurus. Talk, talk to us about this because uh, much as I've probably read over thousands of book at, uh, books at this point, I, I, I never really sat down to do this specific exercise of like, okay, build a yeah. self-awareness, start with a list, start to put these down. So tell us about that. Yeah. Dennis Waitley, he's like a OG, they would call him now back in the self-help days. But let me go back a little bit further because I think his perspective is the, the whole star of this book is the character I called Mr. Monkey. And he really is, in my mind, was the fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And so I, I talk about in going into college, first person my family to go to college. I didn't feel like I fit in. I remember going to the first day of college and I was like, oh my gosh, what are those? Those people have a shirt with this is the late 80s, so forever. Dinosaurs walking, but these people have these little horses on their shirt. I'm like, what are those horses? Like, oh, that's Ralph Lauren, right? I mean, I was literally, you know, just a, a street kid from Toledo. But my point will bring that up is I was trying desperately to reprogram my mind. I had come from, you know, I had just all these negative voices in my head from my childhood. And I discovered in the back of my mom's closet, one time I had a long drive back to college. I found this old Dennis Waitley tape. Hmm. Man, I became obsessed with this guy because it was the first time I started to listen about reprogramming your mind. And I've, I've been embarrassed about this. Finally, now I'm not anymore, but I became about reprogramming your mind, positive self-talk and how you could start to really take a inventory of yourself. And so I, whenever I would go anywhere in class, my fraternity brothers or friends thought I would be listening to music and I'd have this Walkman, old Walkman on, and I'd be listening to these tapes literally all the time mm-hmm. uh, to a point that I, when I was finally done with college, I was frustrated. What am I going to do? And I sat down and he had this exercise called, um, it was a self-inventory, but it was also called like a, it's called the bag methodology, which is what are my blessings? What are my accomplishments? What are my goals? 
But the first part is the blessings and, and self-inventory, you know, both blessings, but also what am I, what I know about myself. And I wrote this long list. I still have it to this day and Kenley hasn't changed that much, but it was really about what drives me, what motivates me, what I, what I believe I'm good at, what I think I'm not good at. And by then I then started to do that every year, this whole bag methodology, just to keep the self inventory because what then it did for me is say, okay, where do I, how do I play to my strengths? That's another thing I learned early on, which is, I don't, you know, if you ever think about changing someone else, there's an old adage about think about how hard it is to change something about yourself. Now go try and change someone else. It's almost impossible. Mm -hmm. And for entrepreneurs, I think you are so much better to play to your strengths and then accommodate your weaknesses versus trying to overcome your weaknesses. And what I mean by that is in my case, I was really good at sales and marketing. I love verbal communication. I love all that aspect. I'm not a detailed person. Okay. I can try and become a detailed person. That's going to be really hard for me. Or I can start to play to the strengths and hire someone on my team knowingly to accommodate or supplement my weaknesses. And so that's why I think self-awareness is so important because it gives you one, a framework for what you're thinking about. Two, it helps you think about where you can, again, use and leverage your strengths, but also how do I think about my team or other resources I need to really supplement stuff that I'm just not that good at? Yeah, this is so, so, so crucial what you're talking about there, which is to get really clear on what you're good at and what you're not good at. Because I, like, I think as entrepreneurs, we suffer from this, uh, this unfortunate idea that we can do everything, that we're superheroes, or we can figure out everything somehow or the other. Yeah. The more we go down that journey, the more painful everything gets. Rather than yeah. focusing in on the zone of our genius, we start to do, do all sorts of things and we can't really make much progress down that path. Yeah, exactly right. I actually think one of the funny parts is, or you know, funny and accurate parts is, make sure you're getting a uh, unbiased view of what you're good at and what you're not good at. You know, not not what I mean. This like not what your mom tells you you're good at, but really you've had proven success in a particular area. That's the zone of genius. I see a lot of people that say, you know, I've got ADD or I'm hyper creative, and I you know I just love brainstorming. It's like, well, okay, that's one part of the job, but a you can't do that all the time, and b are you sure you're really good at that? Mm. You know, as evidenced by. Because that's where I think you can confuse zone of genius and zone of enjoyment or zone of, you know, I like to go, you know, who doesn't like to brainstorm, but Mm -hmm. it can't be what you do all day long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you do any kinds of tests like StrengthsFinder, Colby, uh, personality tests, all those things to kind of get down into knowing yourself better? Yeah. Underneath everything on the sun, the one that I found the most helpful in my journey, and I got through this through my YPO, Young Presence Organization chapter in the mm-hmm. Bay Area was the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a way that it just basically shows dominant personality types. The world is broken down into eight very easily described personality types. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, unlike a Myers-Briggs or something, it basically shows you what, where you go in moments of when you're great at your personality and then where your moments of when you're not in a great state. So it doesn't say you're, you know, this number is good, that number is bad. It just says, here's where you are on average. But in my case, I'm an eight. That means I can be magnanimous. I can be motivating. But my lower levels, when I'm in a bad state, I can be petty. I get very, you know, defensive. So it just helped me think about not only, one, I've got my personality skills, but then I've also got this emotional framework that those two really come together for me. Yeah, yeah. 
this is this is this is really important the whole part of getting to you know yourself because this is one of the things that really helped me get out of my own head when i was trying to do so many things in my business finally i said okay i need an operations person to do the things that i just don't enjoy i should stop doing all of those things and uh, until i got clear on what are the things that i am good at and what are the things i hate doing yeah i never allowed myself to go down the path of saying okay i need to get someone to do these things because i will never the business will be limited by me yeah but i mean i give this very simple advice to entrepreneurs which is do two things if you're you know starting wherever you are write down the top 3 or 4 things the company needs to achieve in the next 12 months hmm. and then then take a 2 by 2 grid it takes all about 5 minutes cuz you know the five, you know four or five things that every company has to do and then do a 2 by 2 grid and put what i love what i hate and the other axis, put it, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at and just fill it in. And, you know, so if some, if you're good at something and you love to do it and it's on your top five list, spend all your time there. Right. Mm. Or if one of your top five things is something you stink at and you're not good at, let's say it's marketing or raising capital, then better go get somebody on your team. Like your example, go get an operations person because your chances of success are going to be zero. If you don't, if you don't really think about it in that regard. Hmm. So write down the list of top three to five things you need to do and then start to map them on this grid, the love, hate, and I'm not good at, I'm good at. So it's more like the passion and what you can be the best at. Yeah. And sometimes in a startup, sometimes some things you're good at, but you don't like to do, you still do them anyways. In my case, mm -hmm. early on budgeting and financial planning, I never really liked it, but hey, it happened to be a CPA and it happened to work at an investment bank. So for the first couple of years, I just did that stuff because we had to. And then eventually I'm like, okay, I can't wait to hire a CFO so I don't have to do this anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where what I learned as well, which is to basically do the thing until you can hire someone to do that thing and get it out of your hair. The Absolutely. First thing, you're like, okay, let's just generate enough money so that we can get that job out of my hair. I don't have to ever do it. And you keep quitting yourself out of these roles in some yeah. ways to step out of the bigger role. And that brings us to the next uh, point of uh, your methodology, the shape, uh, the, the shape philosophy, the H of, or which is help as in getting help from others in all different ways, which as entrepreneurs, we sometimes really suck at because we don't want to feel like we're weak. Yeah. It's, it, I had that same problem. I mean, I, I literally thought back to this kind of, you know, whether it's Mr. Monkey or whatever it is, or, you know, I have to do it all. It's a real weakness, oddly enough. And it, you know, I was not careful. I didn't want to be vulnerable. Um, so I kind of believe I had to do it all. And then finally I had a, a legendary uh, guy in the Silicon Valley named Bill Campbell. Uh, he had been, he, he's been a great CEO and then went on to coach just a few people like Steve Jobs, like Eric Schmidt at Google, the founders of Twitter. So he yeah. became this really interesting guy. And he was on the board of Loud Club. And the funny story I had, I was, I had hired, uh, we were growing the business and I kept, I had hired four VPs of sales in four years and I had to fire each one of them. So clearly I was out of my zone of genius, so to speak. And I literally knew that if I didn't get the next one right, that the board was going to replace me. And I was going down to meet him. He had fortunately I'd still kept in contact with him. He would hold court at this bar in Palo Alto called the old pro. And the rule was you kind of get 30 minutes with Bill, basically a beer with Bill. And he would give you wonderful sage advice. And then when your beer was up, someone else would take your place. So I went down drove down to meet him one night 
And I just, you know, as soon as I walk in, he's like, Smirklow, and he had this really gruff voice. Smirklow, former, he had actually been a football coach at Columbia. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Smirklow, you look like shit. Sorry for the, but I was like, well, thanks, Bill. Good to see you. But he said, you know, and I start telling, pouring out my woes as I'm drinking my beer as fast as I can. Um, and then finally he just stopped me and he said, well, who's helping you? What, what do you mean, Bill? He's like, well, who's your coach? I don't have time for a coach. I, you know, and I just told you, I've, I, I fired my fourth VP of sales, uh, company's on the rails. I'm going to get fired. I don't have time. And, and he just looked at me very simply and he said, wait a minute. So you're telling me that Steve Jobs has a coach and Tiger Woods has a coach and, but Mike Smirklow, the great Mike Smirklow doesn't have time for a coach. And it was just massively illuminating, like any really specific advice was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I started to, and what I took that advice to do was one, I did get a professional coach, but I also started to really think about the problem statements I had back to that grid. What was my, what was I trying to achieve? Clearly it was an area that I knew nothing about, but didn't I have some people in my network that could help me? And lo and behold, I thought of a, a great mentor, I called him up and he gave me literally wonderful advice that resulted in me t- changing my strategy around the head of sales uh, part. So that's kind of the details. But the real point for entrepreneurs is everywhere you look, whatever you're trying to do, someone has already done it. So your job is to not do it all yourself, but to go look for those mentors, hmm. look for people that can help you. And if it's you know raising capital, go find someone who's recently raised some capital. If it's renting office space or figuring out what to do post-pandemic with office space, go find someone who's doing who's just solved that problem and carefully ask for the advice. And I've just found the more I do that, I'm always amazed at how the world opens up. And I think humans in their core really want to help if you ask mm-hmm. them the right way with the right degree of respect. So to me, that's just fundamental and something I, every time I'm thinking about a problem today, who can I talk to? Who would be willing to help me? And how do I ask them with respect? Mm. There's a lot of different kinds of help you talked about there. And the most important of which, I guess, Bill Campbell, what he was talking about was having a coach. And uh, it's, in some ways, it is such an amazing journey with a coach, someone who's just there to listen to you. And you don't really need as much like the coach doesn't have to give you 20 different things to do. In fact, the coach can just give you the right questions to ask to get you to that end destination or the right ways of thinking, right tools of thinking. But just having that person who you can trust and who you can talk to and who can guide you down to the guide you in this journey is just immeasurably valuable in my opinion. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, maybe if one of your listeners is sitting there running a very small business and, and you think, oh, I don't have money for a coach, I do think paying for a coach, if you can afford to it, is, is invaluable. But also just don't limit your thinking. I think you can find mentors all around you mm-hmm. and they can be directly related. Again, you're trying to raise capital, go talk to someone who's done it before. But even just having a sounding board or having a network, I'm a big believer, I'm in YPO, it's a great um, yeah. you know, network of, of professionals. Whatever it is, uh, whatever is easiest for you to achieve wherever you are geographically or physically, and even now, obviously online, I think getting some form of help, and it can be someone who just listens to you, it can be a mentor who's done what you're trying to do, or it can be a paid coach. It doesn't really matter, but going on this journey, it's a long, hard journey, as you said earlier, to try doing it on your own is just, uh, it's almost mission impossible. Yeah, it's like, you, as you said, go, I mean, 
and I'm a big believer, just like what you've outlined in the book, like of getting all kinds of support groups and help. So I'm part of different groups, different masterminds, different networks of people. I have a coach. It's like, <laughs> it's a combination of all of those things that we require. And not only that, you, funnily enough, you talk about getting a dog, but I know what you meant. You meant about having a network outside of your work that keeps you fresh and keeps you, you know, helps you stay uh, in some ways grounded to life beyond just business. All yeah. of that is so crucial to be able to grow yourself, to develop yourself and to grow your business. Yep. Yeah. So the next key, which we already talked about was authenticity in this whole journey as you mapped out for us. Um, but the one that comes after that in the shape methodology is P persistence. And uh, of course, as entrepreneurs, we know that that is probably one of the most uh, challenging pieces of the puzzle uh, to, to be able to persist. And in at Next Coast Ventures, you have a specific term for people who can persist. What do you call that? Yeah, we, we call it glass eaters. Um, and it's one of those visceral terms that if you're listening, you go, oh, that sounds horrible. Um, but we, we chose it because what we look for in entrepreneurs is someone who can understand what they're getting themselves into and do everything it takes within legal and ethical boundaries to move the business forward. And so our joke is, you know, imagine how painful it would be to have to eat, um, eat a handful of glass. Mm -hmm. uh, not something we obviously encourage people to do, but it's more a mindset. Uh, the greatest entrepreneurs we have, we watch them time and time and again, and they're so inspirational um, because they work really hard. I'm not saying don't have life balance, but understanding this is going to be a, a huge sacrifice. And the reason backtrack why I wrote the book is packed to those lightweight blog posts or hacks. They don't, they really make you sound like to your point, you're like, you know, Elon Musk came up with an idea, started it. Now he's a billionaire. <laughs> End of story. <laughs> like, what? You know, well, well, let's talk about how many nights do you think, you know, Elon yeah. Musk talks about being down to their last penny at Tesla and yeah. what it took. And he, and he put hundreds of his, I mean, his own money started pouring into the business so you forget about that or you skip over it. But the glass eater concept is one, just to understand that's what it's going to take Two, to appreciate that and not under underscore it. But then three, be prepared for the ups and downs. Yeah, That's the part I think that most people starting out don't really fully anticipate is holy cow. You know, when you're writing your business plan, everything sounds great. We're going to go do this. We're going to build the next Starbucks or we're going to open the restaurant. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter the size or scope. But your, your enthusiasm and your optimism is what gets you going. You wouldn't do it without that. Mm -hmm. But then understand that my, my favorite, I don't know if I, Mike Tyson quote comes to mind. It says, everyone has a plan <laughs> until they get punched in the mouth. So here I'm quoting Mike Tyson, but the former, the boxer, but former heavyweight champion of the world. But like, you just get that. It's like, you have a plan and then something's going to come punch you in the mouth. You started a travel business a year ago, then COVID happened. You know, yeah. you, you just leased some new office space and suddenly everyone has to work from home. Whatever it is. I, when I was starting off as an entrepreneur going to raise capital, 9-11 happened. Not exactly the best time to go talk to investors about giving you some money, but that is part of it. And so having that and understanding it from day one, I think gives you a much more balanced and persistent mindset uh, to get through the journey. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things you said in the book, you said the biggest mistake you can make is to assume entrepreneurship is going to be easy. And the funny thing is, uh, <laughs> 
every day I see people or every day, you know, people start businesses with the idea that somehow because they have so much talent or intellectual ability or prowess of some kind, somehow for them, it's going to be easy. Yeah. And yeah. that itself is a nail in the coffin because the assumption that it's going to be easy is going to kill your business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why, and I recommend, and not only that, you know, how do you get more of this? I recommend some great, my favorite business book is called Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Mm. Because what was so great about that book, and everybody knows the founder of Nike and what a great story. No, no, no. Go read about the first seven years of that business. And, you know, again, it was just literally on the edge of survival each and every day. That's what entrepreneurship's all about. And I don't mean to, and I I think talking about that can be scary, but it's more like, and I use this marathon analogy. It's like, well, you wouldn't, if someone, if you came to me and said, I want to run a marathon and said, oh yeah, it should be fun. Here's some, here's some tennis shoes. Have Mm -hmm. at it. You know, you'd say, no, no, no. You're going to train for three or four months and you're going to change your diet. You have to do all this long runs and all this stuff because you wouldn't want me to go. I wouldn't want you to go try and run a marathon without being prepared. And that really, to your point is what the persistent mindset is. Um, And I think it's just, absolutely overlooked in, in most of the cases. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of the things you talk about, one of the most powerful ways to develop that mental toughness, that persistence is uh, meditation, a, a, a daily meditation practice as you keep and I keep too. It's, it's such a grounding and such a, uh, to me, it is like a mind control game to me. Meditation is more than a spiritual game. Yeah, I really wish I would have done it when I was, I, I wish I had done it as a CEO. And I, I think everyone that worked for me wish I would have too. But it's something I, I did um, start to have later in life. But I, I you know, I know if I have a good day, uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's a morning routine, right? I get up, I meditate, I get, take some time for physical uh, activity, and then I begin my day. And when I do that, the day tends to be much better. When I don't do it, I don't. So it's just any of these tricks that you can embody in the books filled with some very specific ideas to try and get this to be part of your life and part of a practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now the last piece of the puzzle, expectations. And you talk about that as in, you know, it ties very closely to the persistence piece as in you have to, a lot of people get into business with the expectation that one day I will have accomplished this and things will be easier when my business is doing 10 million in revenue or hundred million in revenue or something like that, or whatever it is for them. It's like, Oh yeah. At that point, everything will be easy and things yeah. will suddenly magically change. And as you say, someday never comes. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I thought the monkey voice in my head would stop, would tell me I had enough. I thought that the job would get easier. I thought, everything would work. And yeah, the story I tell in the book is I was literally thinking someday when we get to 50 million in revenue, then all these problems I'm dealing with, the employees, the customers are just going to go away. And we hit this goal and the business is doing great. And I was despondent. And one of my board members said, Hey, what's up? And I just said, I thought it was going to get easy. And uh, I don't, he wasn't quoting the, the sad CCR song, but it, the lyrics resonate because he said, you know, someday never comes. You, you don't, you're going to, you're on a roller coaster or a small boat or whatever analogy you want to use. The waves change, the hills change. The problems are different. They keep mm-hmm. coming. And what I found is, uh, and the monkey voice never goes away, but I started to think about at the beginning of the journey, there are certain expectations you have. It's going to get hard, but momentum really matters. So just get going with it. Mm-hmm. And then when you're on the journey, don't assume that it's going to get easier. It's going to get different. 
and there'll be ups and downs, but it's, they're never going to be a day where everything works. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, at some point, for most people, the movie ends. Um, and mine had an unceremonious ending that I talk about in the book, but just know that it's going to come to an end. I think when you have those expectations, again, it really helps and keeps, keeps all of this in perspective. Yeah, I remember one time I was at a Tony Robbins event. I'm not sure if you've read his books or yeah. I'm sure you've you've come across his stuff, right? Yeah, big and fan. Yeah, yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a big fan of his as well. And he opened the event, four-day event. He says, all right, you guys are all excited, but I want to tell you something. You know what your biggest problem is in life? And people are coming up with ideas. He's like, no, the biggest problem is that you think you shouldn't have any problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's a, I, I talk about, the, there's a Marcus really quote that basically just says, um, mm-hmm. and I'm not a massive stoic expert by any means, but it's this idea of like, wake up every day and know that the world is going to kind of basically stomp on your plans by to summarize the quote. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be met with people that really aren't interested in your, your goals and are probably going to treat you in a negative way. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when I first got that quote, I was like, oh, that sounds horrible. It sounds like what Mr. Monkey would say. But what it really was is a mindset that says, once you accept that, you're more than halfway through the journey. Now you know that the world, and I tell this all the entrepreneurs, people are busy. You're going to come up with an idea and you know your mom and maybe your friends are going to care, maybe your partner. But after that small group, no one really cares. And so your job is to go out in the world and make people care. But coming into the world and thinking that, your idea is bulletproof and that the world should basically beat a path to your door as the old saying goes, just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so be prepared to meet with a really a uninterested or disinterested world and be told no a lot. Okay. Now I know that's going to be the, the path. Now I'm ready versus going out and saying, this is going to be easy because it's just not going to be. Yeah. Yeah. This is a journey of a, this, this is a very long journey rather than a sprint, as you say, it's, and it's a marathon and you have to allow yourself to to go through the hardships and to to continue on continuing on in some ways and all those names you're talking about Marcus Aurelius and these guys some of my favorite authors especially Marcus Aurelius and his meditations uh, talk so much about developing that mental toughness yep. to be able to withstand those challenges those frustrations and all those things um literally i i literally summarized the 50 greatest books on building mental toughness in one of our packages just because i i am such a devout like i I just want to keep learning about how to do that and how to keep improving that it's a never-ending process for me yeah me too and a lot of these things are easy to understand and harder to put into practice but that's that's part of the that's part of the journey as well it's a, it's a journey of a lifetime. I always like uh, for, for all the work that we do, like we're never done becoming the greatest version of ourselves or the greatest entrepreneur that we could be. It's a journey. And yeah. Um, yeah. So I think we've come to the conclusion of the book. So I will let you wrap it up in whichever way you feel you deem fit. And uh, then we'll, You'll also tell us where to find the book, where to find you and what kind of businesses you are investing in these days. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that uh, the book is available on Amazon and all the proceeds of the book go to charity, uh, a scholarship my wife and I set up to help uh, students from diverse and underrepresented backgrounds that are interested in entrepreneurship to pursue that as a study, academic study. So mm-hmm. 
if you are listening and you do buy the book, know that it is going to support a worthy cause. Largely, uh, one, because I think it's necessary, but I'm just passionate about entrepreneurship. I think in my summary remarks, I would just say the world, if you're thinking about being an entrepreneur, the world needs you. I think innovation, solving the biggest problems in the world, or just creating jobs and a, a better path forward, entrepreneurship is the greatest job in the world. I've just told you all the reasons why it's hard, but I close by saying it is the greatest job in the world. The world needs more entrepreneurs. We need more diversity in entrepreneurship. And we need entrepreneurs who are successful to maintain the mental toughness and balance that got them there. So that's what I'm passionate about. In terms of where you can find me, uh, my firm is Next Coast Ventures. All of our themes and what we invest in is are listed on our website. And then I write on my part-time or my, my, my not-day job at Mike Smirklo, S-M-E-R-K-L-O.com. That's my social handle on, on Twitter and Instagram and everything. But also at mikesmerklow.com, you can go there. You can get a free chapter of the book. You can take an entrepreneurial readiness test, which is kind of a fun quiz just to see where it is you may want to, to focus on. And it's also got a bunch of content around this whole aspect of, of the mental aspect of entrepreneurship. Mm. Well, this is great, Mike. Thank you very much. Uh, I really enjoyed reading the book, talking to you about the book. And of course, talking to you about the book has given me a whole new perspective. So for all of you guys listening, um, Definitely recommend this book, so The Mental Game of Entrepreneurship. Mike talks about is really crucial. There are a lot of fun exercises in the book, a lot of great exercises in the book that will be worth uh, doing and getting into and learning about. So highly recommend it. And Mike, uh, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy day to be with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I love the conversation and I love all the book suggestions. So thank you for, uh, for all the work you do. Absolutely. Awesome.